Good morning to all of you. It's great to see you here today. And I, like Jim, appreciate uh, all the blessings that we have as uh, believers in Christ. And I think about that very often. Um, and I'm sure you do as uh, individuals uh, living in what I would call the devil's world. But we're here. We have a power available to us uh, greater than anything Satan could put out there. The Bible says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So we're going to claim that promise as we look at some things from God's Word today. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 14 for a few minutes. Genesis 14. The other day I was at home with my uh, wife and we had the daughter and grandkids over for a few minutes and, and they were going through some pictures and uh, Harry was talking about pictures that might look better this year than next year. I just want to verify that I've never seen that happen. Uh, you, you, you may happen to you, but uh, every time I see a picture, because she said, Dad, I don't remember when you had brown hair. I thought, yeah, but we have pictures that do verify that. So we, I need to be keeping that and throwing away these old ones, maybe. So I always cringe when I hear something about photographs and taking a pictures for that reason right there. Uh, it's, it's amazing, but I'm just thankful I'm here. I'm thankful for the preservation of the Word of God. When you think about it, when you think about that we have as close to an autographed copy as you can have, because whenever we look at uh, original languages, uh, in fact, Terry and I were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, uh, whenever the King James Version was translated, they used Greek text that were probably 400 years after Christ. They had been copied and copied and copied. That's the best we had at the time. But since then, amazingly and wonderfully, we have Greek and Hebrew texts, really the Greek texts, go back to within one generation of Christ. That's staggering that we have that available. So whenever we have a translation of the Bible based on these older Greek texts, we are as close to the original as just like Christ was saying it. And so I appreciate the fact that that has been preserved for us. And now we actually have the canon of Scripture, the Word of God, by which we can know how to handle our exigencies and come to uh, be able to think through problems with God's viewpoint. It's, it's easy to go back and relate to things to a man's viewpoint. That's easy. But uh, that often causes worry when we look at things that, at man's viewpoint. So uh, we're going to look at a man today who had many problems, but God reminds him, you need to go back and look at your blessings. You know, we tend, we'll focus on a problem, but we forget sometimes that God has tremendously blessed us. And so he's gotten us through some difficult circumstances. If any one of you, if all of you, if we ask each one to come up and give a testimony of how God has gotten you through some tough times, every one of you could do that. And so that's why we need to remember whenever the next tough time comes, think back to that. Think back to that wonderful concept of God. God got through me, got, got me through this horrible time, and here I am. And so he, he hadn't given up on you. So we will, we will always, of course, remember that. Several years ago, 
uh, Pam and I traveled, and she has the misfortune of traveling with me to Civil War battlefields. So I know none of you ladies would uh, just jump up and down if I told you we were taking a tour of a couple of those. But we were in South Carolina, and then we made our way up to Virginia. Uh, and then we, uh, I wanted to go up above uh, north of Richmond to see the Great Wilderness Campaign led by Ulysses Grant, uh, defended by Robert E. Lee, a fine believer. And so uh, as we traveled, uh, we came to finally to Petersburg, just outside uh, the area of Richmond there. And there are several battlefield sites named uh, related to Peter, the Battle of Petersburg. It's really a, a siege of the north against the south. And so we go into this uh, bookstore. I guess it was a visitor center. You know, I have all these wonderful visitor centers. And I don't ever get my hopes up of finding anything wonderful in there. Because you know how we have a woke history these days. So I was looking through, looking at the books on the wall. And I saw the name. And I was looking at the book. And I turned back this way. And I turned back. Hold it. I saw the word Christ. Let me go over there and take a look at that. So I did, and I went over there, and the name of the book was, in fact, I wrote it down here by William Jones, Christ in the Camp. And it's a story about the efforts of chaplains, uh, Confederate chaplains in the Civil War, to uh, minister to the men who were fighting. And so it has letters, and he was, he was the head chaplain. And so this was written as a primary source about the time of the Civil War, and then he relates uh, to the hearers, to the reader, all the letters that came from other chaplains as they ministered to the soldiers. It is a fantastic story. And so as I read through that, and I don't necessarily recommend it, it's, it's a bunch of letters. If you, if you want to go out and get it, fine, but it's like that thick. And I read the whole thing, and um, I don't know, um, and then I carried it to Half Price Books the other day, and they bought it. So, and today I was thinking about when I was this morning, I said, why did I do that? I wished I had that book back, but I may have to buy another copy. No, she said, no, we're not doing that. So, so anyway, uh, and the common theme, though, the common theme of all the chaplains was the number of young men who came to know Christ as Savior. And they estimate over 150,000 in the four-year period. And often it was young men who were on their deathbed, severely wounded, uh, young men who saw the realities of death as they, you know, as they viewed it on a daily basis. They viewed death and the reality of it every day. Now, something we don't think about, but, well, I guess the older I get, the more I do think about it, because it's a reality, it's coming. And uh, that being with Christ would certainly be a wonderful thing. But uh, let me read you a couple of things from that story. Listen to this. This is according to, uh, he was a Colonel William Jones uh, in the Confederate Army. Now, was there one for the Union Army? I've never seen that. I'm sure, I'm sure there were wonderful people saved. So all you Northerners uh, in here, just uh, just think this is probably having, happening in the uh, Northern Army as well. I'm hoping that it is. Here's what it says. Jones, that is uh, Captain, uh, Colonel William Jones, was the main chaplain for the Confederate Army 
organized large numbers of chaplains for as many Confederate units as he could. The main goal was giving the gospel to soldiers and to teach scripture on a daily basis if time permitted. Thousands of soldiers accepted Christ and learned the importance of the intake of the Word of God on a daily basis. Daily, these soldiers faced one of the biggest problems that we as believers have. And of course, that's the possibility of dying. Now, those soldiers had a little different perspective. They knew it could happen the next day and happen instantly, or they could be wounded and suffer for days with, with uh, no painkillers. It's horrible. But I want to read to you a couple of uh, statements by, and it's on my phone here, so if this thing works, great. If it doesn't, yeah, here it is, just right. Uh, this is a letter as a young man was dying. Uh, he had somebody pen it for him to send to his father. It says, tell my father that I have tried to eat my meals with thanksgiving. Tell him that I've tried to pray as we used to do at home. Tell him that Christ is now all my hope, uh, all my trust, and that he is precious to my soul. Tell him that I am not afraid to die. All is calm. Tell him that I believe Christ will take me to himself and to my dear sister who is in heaven. Last words he said. And then he passed, and he had great peace in the whole process. And a second letter, or a second statement, was taken as men surrounded Thomas Jonathan Jackson. I guess I should give an award if somebody knows his nickname. Stonewall. Okay. All right. Um, and I, I, that uh, got fear into the hearts of all Northerners, I realized that back in the day. But what a fine, fine believer he was. And he, he, every weekend when he could, if he had a pass or had time, he would go back and teach Sunday school to the black Sunday school class that he organized at his local church. Hundreds of them would come to hear him speak and give the gospel. And so that's the type of man he was a great, a fine believer in Christ. But he was wounded in the war at the Battle of Chancellorsburg. And then after that battle, of course, it was a great victory. And after that battle, uh, they carried him off to a, a community close to Chancellorsburg. We visited that, too. So uh, we didn't actually get to go in the room where he died, but it's there. They've got that closed off. I don't know if that's a woke issue or what it is. But I do know there were a lot of people around him, and they took this down. Here's what he said. It says, towards the end of his life or the war, Jackson was accidentally hit by friendly fire and stated, why, gentlemen, be quiet. Don't be bothered. If I live, it'll be for the best. God knows and directs all things for the best for those whose trust is in him. And my trust is in him. Further last words of Jackson showcased his submission to God's will. You find me severely wounded, he said, not unhappy, not depressed. I believe it has been done according to the will of God, and I acquiesce entirely to his holy will. Then he died. And so what a great testimony to somebody facing one of the major problems that we will all face. I've made a list of problems, and if I were to ask you to make a list, you could do that. I have little doubt. We have all gone through some stuff, but the fact is, I've taken a list and categorized it, put it in categories. 
And so it's not just one problem, it's categories of problems. You ever feel that way? It's not just one thing. It's like 10 things at the same time. I, I've been there, and uh, I'm sure a lot of you have been there. So uh, that's what I've done, and we're going to look at some of those categories of problems. Number one, this is big for me now. It may not be big for you. So you could have your own list of this. And no, there's no right or wrong here. You got that? So it's my, my list of a category of problems. Number one is reaction and distraction. For me, reaction. When that angry parent walked into my office as a former school principal, and they did, and they have nothing kind to say, and the longest word they know is four letters. <laughs> and so what's that going to do for me? Am I going to react to that? And then am I going to overthink that and be distracted by it so that I lose focus on why I'm here? Can I sit there and listen to that? So that was a problem for me. Was I perfect in that? Absolutely not. I was not. But you grow, you learn, you apply, and you do that over time. Uh, have you ever been treated unfairly? Probably. You're a human being, so that categorizes being treated unfairly. Have you been on a job and somebody, you've been passed over for promotion? And so it, do we react to those things, or do we just think, as Stonewall Jackson just said, this is God's will, I'm going to work through this, it's a negative thing for me right now, or it seems to be, but at the same time, God's going to work it out for good, because God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. And of course, that is the big key. Uh, and then along the way, what happens with, with this category of problem, reaction and distraction, is the idea of becoming discouraged. So that's another problem we face. We personally have faced that, if you're a human being. Or uh, we become bitter. Or we might become antagonistic. Or we might want to blame somebody else. The blame game. We've all been there. Want to blame somebody else. Uh, losing objectivity, thinking subjectively that, I'm, that uh, I'm being offended. Well, thankfully, when Jesus was on the cross and the sins of the world were being poured out on him, he never had that thought. He was unfairly condemned. He unjustly received the sins of the world, and he never complained. And so that's our model. That's a model for me to think about the things that come happen to us, and then you think about Jesus Christ on the cross. That's, to me, a tremendous problem-solving device. Go back to him. Go back to the person who suffered and died for us, bore our sins, bore all of our injustices. He took our place. What a wonderful concept, wonderful, wonderful sense of security we can have from that. And so that's category number one. You see, you can put 25 problems in that one category, of course. Secondly, fear and inadequacies. Have you ever felt inadequate to a situation? Somebody's asked you to do something, and for what reason you just lost your mind for the moment, you agreed to do it. And so, uh, so you do it, and you feel overwhelmed by that. Later on, you get to think about, why, why did I do that? 
I must have, must have lost my mind. And so uh, there's a feeling of dread, maybe a feeling of terror. Uh, a worry becomes worse and worse. So that sense of dread, that sense of fear, that sense of insecurity becomes for us an overpowering thing. But that's not God's plan for us, I can assure you. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound thinking. That's what he does. So when we fear, remember when we're afraid of anything, or we're insecure about anything, or we're inadequate about anything, and we are, then when that happens, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. And so that's fear. I taught psychology back quite a few years ago, and uh, we had to learn, or ask kids to learn, uh, some of the phobias associated with, uh, are branded by psychology, and they're out there. There's over 150 of them, phobias about something. Uh, kids love the one where, I've forgotten the name of it, it's like this long, it's fear of the number 13. I mean, so when I see a 13, I'm going there. Because I don't want to believe there. But I, I don't want anything to do with fear related to a, to a dang number. It gets me. So fear. All right, so that's, that's two. Number three, and this is a big one, is being rejected. Being rejected, and it's not your fault. That's a tough one. That's one we have to turn to Scripture and apply the doctrines of the Word of God to get us past that. So the fear of being rejected is one of the toughest ones because we all care, whether we admit it or not, we've all cared what people think. And when that person that you thought loved you or cared about you is now rejecting you, that ain't easy. So what do we do? Well, we're going to see the solution to these here in a minute. And then it's the idea of death. I've mentioned that. That's a something problem that we face. And then lastly, in my list of categories, it's not being in sync with God's timing. Now, God has a timing for things. We have a timing for things. Sometimes they don't meet. And so when we're out of sync with God's timing, then that in and of itself means that we're going to have problems, we're going to have worries, we're going to have concerns. And so how do we get to the point where we are always in sync with God and his timing for us? And the classic example of that in the Bible, of course, is the study of Joseph. If you've ever wondered how, how to overcome that, well, look at the life of Joseph, and if, you know, if we ever get back up here, then we may look at that. How do we overcome being out of sync with God? What a tremendous testimony he had. Well, let's look at Abraham. At least three or four of these he had all at one time. And so how did he handle that? How, as a person who had accepted the coming Messiah as his Savior, he had believed in God, and God had counted it to him for righteousness. He had the righteousness uh, that, that he needed to be able to go to heaven. And so even though he had that, he had issues. He had worries. And all of it worked out, and he actually became one of the greatest men, one of the greatest believers in all the Bible. And so we're going to see him at his weak point. Don't take this as a criticism from me. 
I'm thankful for Abraham. I'm thankful I can look at him and say, well, you know, I can look back. Abraham failed right here whenever I failed. So, and God was patient with him. God was kind to him and God got him through it. All right, so let's look in chapter 14, what happened to Abraham. Chapter 14, verse 17. Then after his return from the feet of Kedar Laomer, Kedar Laomer had led a, a time of, uh, he was going after the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so you know who lived there that was related to Abraham. That's where a lot lived. And so what happened was Abraham took an army. He organized a small, effective army. And he went down there and he defeated all these guys. Man, he was a he was a uh, general par excellence. He was great. Uh, now they probably didn't call him general, but he was General Abraham. So he went to uh, defeat Kedar Laomer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now, he was priest of God most high. Now, we're not going into Melchizedek, and you know there's a wonderful teaching about that. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be the God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all that as Abraham did. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, and you notice this, you know, Chuck talked about grace today in a fantastic way. And as we remember grace, you remember Abram. He was a man of grace. And notice what he says here. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. He wanted his wealth to be made honestly and come from the Lord. And so what a great grace attitude. All right, so he's got a tremendous victory. He has won a victory not only in a physical battle, but in how he's thinking related to God and his plan. But then when you get to the next chapter, chapter 15, it's like he had a brain seizure. And he's now not thinking doctrine anymore. And so it's quite interesting. And that happens to us often right after a great victory, where it be a moral victory, a spiritual victory, in this case, an actual physical victory on the battlefield. He goes down and he's forgetting some things. And God's going to teach him a Bible class. And we want to see the Bible class. Can you imagine God's teaching Abram a Bible class? I would love to have been a fly on the wall for that Bible lesson, but we're going to see it. We're about to be that fly on the wall here. So what is he worrying about? You know, he's had this great victory. God is taking care of him. Everything's going great. And then God comes to him in their conversation before Abraham has his brain stroke. And he says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. End of conversation. Now, Abram has his say-so. And so he's gone from that powerful Christian, that powerful military man, to all of a sudden doubting. He's worried. He is insecure. He's uh, going to react to the fact he doesn't have all God promised him yet. And so he has forgotten the very wonderful principle that God is never in a hurry, but he's always on time. And that's a principle that Abram learns 
And that's something we got to learn because we, when we pray, we often want that principle right now. I want what I'm asking for right now. Abram did. But God said, no, you're going to have to wait. And as you wait, you're going to grow. And as you grow, when that promise is fulfilled, you'll have the capacity to, to handle it. And it'll be wonderful. All right, so notice, Abram said, O oh Lord God, what wilt thou give me since I am childless? It's always a problem. A Abram could not, he had problems getting over the idea that God had promised him an heir and he didn't have one. I want it now. He says, I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, since you, a little blame game here, since you have given no offspring to me, one morning to my house is going to be my heir. God says, very kindly and gently, I'm sure God said, nope, it's not the way it's going to be. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, now the word of the Lord as spoken in the Old Testament when verbally espoused is nearly always a second person of the Trinity. That's not the actual physical person of Jesus Christ yet, but it's the same person. All right. So he, and so the Bible class is about to begin. And in this Bible class, we're going to see what God reminds him of. He says, all right, Abram, we're about to have Bible class and your word about an heir you're worried about a land. You're worried about having a family down the, in the years to come. Let me teach you something. And I believe he was reiterating something that he, Abraham had already learned. And don't we need that? I, I need that. I need repetition. I need about the hundredth time I finally catch on. I'm a little slow. So when I finally catch on, I've got it, and I can actually apply to the various circumstances that I'm facing. And so notice what he did. Verse 5. Let's, let's go back to the middle of verse 4. This man, Eliezer, shall not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And so Abram, uh, he, he can't even visualize that. See, when a solution is not close, sometimes we tend to worry. If I can't see the solution, then we worry. That's a reaction. And that reaction means you'll worry about the next thing. If you'll worry about one thing at length, the odds are when the next situation arises, you're going to worry about that one and worry about that. And before, before you know it, we're off track and not in sync with God and his thinking. And that's not where he wants us to be. So he's going to remind him of some wonderful facts here. He says, number one, he's coming from you, Abram. Because Abram's worried. He's 80 or 85 years old. That's, that could be a problem. And so what did God do? He said, he took him outside and taught him this. Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said, so shall he, your descendants become. And of course, then Abram begins to think it's the beauty of God's system in which he is, he's giving that he's hearing this lesson from God from the second person of the Trinity. And as he hears it, he begins to remember other things. And that's why it's important that we come and listen to the teaching of the Word of God uh, every day if possible. Listen to the teaching of the Word of God because it, calls, it generates thought. It generates spiritual solutions to human problems, and that's what we've got to have. We need the Spirit. We need God's solution. And so he tells them, what does he do? He says, you're going to have these descendants. And just remember, Abram, just in case you've forgotten, all the stars all the heavenly host, 
the billions and billions of galaxies, not stars, galaxies, and then billions of stars in each one of those galaxies, that's me. I did that. And you're more important than that. I'm going to take care of you. I understand your problem, but remember the biblical concept, I have the power. I am sovereign. I am righteous. I am just. I am love. I am eternal life. And he went on to, I'm sure, explain, I am omnipotent, omnipresent, immutable. I don't change. Great veracity. The truth is always there. And so he reminded Abraham of that. And so Abraham begins to think. It's just like if we hadn't thought about grace in the last uh, two days or so, then the reminder we had today was so eloquently done that we are all products, total products of the grace of God. He's got us. He, we are in his hand. And as a believer in Christ, you need not worry or become disgruntled or say, oh, God, you hadn't done this for me yet, like Abram did. But I'm glad we have Abram. He became one of the greatest believers in all of the Bible. And notice in verse 7. So, okay, answer to complaint number one. Let's see what he says next. Uh, God continues, I am the Lord who brought you out of the earth of the Chaldees. He said, you need to remember, Abram, some of your past blessings. How I got you from point A to point B. I separated you from a place you did not need to be. And I think all of us could justify to us, we could say in our own lives that sometimes God removed us from a situation that was not good for us. He obviously did that for Abraham. And so he had to get him away from Ur, a place of great uh, satanic activity. Uh, he had to get him to a place where a new land was. And he did that over a period of years. And he said, just remember that, Abraham, when you needed me the most... When I, as your Savior, uh, brought you out of the land and took you away from all of that, then we made a place for you. And you're going to have a land, Abram. You're going to have this wonderful land that's coming. And so Abram began to think about that. More doctrine, more blessings that he had received. He tended to forget what God had done in the past. So the next time we're discouraged about anything, just take a minute and reflect back to... God and his plan for you. Just think about it. Just, just meditate on that. His grace manifested toward us in so many ways in previous times of our lives is amazing to me. I think about it uh, quite often. And so uh, then, okay, Abraham gets it down. And notice in verse 8. Oh, here we go with the problem. Oh, Lord God, how may I know that I shall possess it? Well, Abram, you've got to learn and trust. Now, God, see, I said that sarcastically. I'm sure God didn't. He was very kind, and he said, and here's what he said. And he said to him, I'm going to teach you a visual lesson. And this is a wonderful visual lesson. And you've all read this. And so let's, I'm going to read through it quickly, and then we'll get to the end and see exactly what uh, uh, Abram learned out of this process. He said, God said in verse 9, the second person of the Trinity, and he instructed him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, uh, both categories of females. And of course, eventually in the Levitical offerings, not here yet, but when the Levitical offerings come, the female uh, and offering was a symbol of dying for sins for believers. And it was what we call a confession offering. 
And so when you sin, ever so often you would need to bring this offering. And so that's what the female would represent. And then he said, bring a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Of course, he just slice them in the middle, lay them out, and then Abram would walk between them. And notice what he said. Uh, he brought all of these out to him, cut them in two, and laid each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. The birds spoke about the uh, unique person of Jesus Christ. He was not, no legs were broken on the cross, as was prophesied in Scripture. And so he would be the unique person of history. And so Abram's getting an object lesson. He said, remember, you tend to sin, Abram. You need to confess those sins. And then secondly, he said, remember, Abram, uh, the time is coming when God will send a Messiah, and that Messiah will bear all the sins of the world. And God has, will do the greatest thing he could ever do for you, and you haven't even asked for it. And so God solved our biggest problem the moment Jesus took our sins away. That's the biggest problem you'll ever have. That's the biggest problem I'll ever have. And so God did the most for us when we were the worst. And so there's a line of reasoning I used to use with kids. It's called a fortiori logic. And it means if, if something was done when you were the worst, what's the limit of what God can do for you when you're a member of the family, when you accept Christ as Savior? Now it's personal. Now you are personally looked at and loved by God as the, as the unique person he's going to take care of. It's personal. So he's reminding Abraham that this great event will occur one day, and it's going to be personal, Abraham, and you as a believer in the second person of the Trinity who is going to come, then you remember that, and it's a unique person, and that unique person would bear the sins of the world, and he solved your greatest problem before these other problems ever existed, Abraham. Think about that. And then we have a tremendous miracle that occurs. And I'm going to read the whole rest of the passage, but we'll skip down, if you would, uh, to verse 17. In, he, of course, Abraham has a dream. Uh, he has a dream of great terror. And then as that dream comes along, uh, he, he begins to, uh, God does a miracle right there. And I don't know who viewed that. It's, it's hard to tell from the scripture who actually viewed that miracle when it happened. But we know it happened because Moses wrote about it uh, in the book of Genesis here. And so, uh, he reminded him the Jews are going into Egypt, they have 400 years of slavery, and then they'll come out. All that's going to happen. I'm still God. But notice this next verse, verse 17. Now it came about when the sun had set that a very thick darkness, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between those pieces. That sounds a little odd, but it's, it's a great lesson for Abraham, still called Abram at this point. And so uh, back up earlier in the passage, it says a bunch of birds came in and Abraham's just trying to shoo them all away because they're coming in to uh, take over the carcasses of meat he had laid out there. And so uh, it spoke of the futility of human efforts and, and it was futile on his part. But he said, Abram, now you've got to make a choice. You have this doctrinal information. You know who I am. You've seen my power. You've seen the evidence of what I'm going to bring about in your life. And you have to trust that. You can worry. 
you can react, you can become miserable in your life, Abram, or on the other hand, you can trust me and take my word at this. And so it's presented almost as a promise. Notice what it says here, a smoking oven and a flaming torch pass between those pieces. And so God was showing Abraham, you're going to be, you can be one of those. You can be a smoking pot. It was already dark. But people not applying scripture add to their darkness. That's what the pot did. It became even darker. When we, when we can't think in terms of biblical solutions, we are adding to our own darkness. Now, on the other hand, a flaming torch went through there. And you can be, he said, Abraham, you can be that flaming torch. You can be the one who trusts me implicitly in everything. And the question becomes, will you, Abram? And that's the question to us. The question to me is, am I going to be a smoking pot, a smudge pot, or a flaming torch? Let's see how the story ended. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Now, in Hebrews chapter 11, we'll see what Abram actually became. When you read it in Genesis, you know, he's not there yet. In fact, in the very next chapter, Sarah come up with a scheme. You know what the scheme was? I go in and have a child by my slave girl. And Abram, he should have told Sarah, no, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. He said, that's a great idea. And so, <clears throat> so, and of course, that caused about half the problems in the world today because Abram made that mistake. And so the fact is, he wasn't there yet. But notice in Hebrews chapter 11, one of my favorite uh, uh, verses in all the Bible, and of course, we have an honor roll of faith. A tremendous honor roll. Verse 17, Hebrews eleven seventeen. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, now the time would come where the test became more severe. You remember, you remember the story? They had a child, finally, Abraham and Sarah, and the result was we have Isaac. Uh, Isaac, of course, means laughter. One of the great uh, uses of uh, scripture are words in the scripture because they had laughed whenever, you know, God had made the, when the Lord had made the promise and they laughed. And so God, in his wonderful sense of humor, said, let's name this youngster laughter. That was awesome. Now, by then, of course, Abram has grown. His Christian way of life has gotten to where he trusts God implicitly. And so about 16 or 17 years into Isaac's life, he gets a command from the Lord. Now, if it had been the Abraham of Genesis 15, he would have said, hold, hold it, Lord. Uh, I'm not sure I can do that. But that's not what he says. Notice what he did. By faith, in verse 17, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And God said, you go sacrifice your son. He said, where? And I'm going to get my horse ready and we're gone. He never questioned it. He had gone from questioning God to implicit confidence and trust in him. That's where we got to get. That's where Mike Milstead has to get. Whenever we, when we're distracted by things, when we're insulted, or you're treated unfairly, whatever's happened, are we going to focus on that? Or are we going to focus on the person who has the answer to the problem? Abraham can do that now. Notice what it says here. This is, this is wonderful. He offered up Isaac. And uh, he had re received the promises, was offering up his only son. He said, this is my heir. This is the one God you gave me. Now you're taking him away. He could have used that line of reasoning, but he didn't. 
he says, offered up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said in Isaac and laughter, your descendants shall be called or blessed. But what did he do? He thought. Instead of reacting and being distracted, he now can think scripturally, even though there was no Bible at that time. And he considered, he concluded, he reasoned, he got to a doctrinal uh, conclusion. He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead. That even if I kill Isaac, God can raise him up. Now he's there. He has drawn the proper conclusion. He has thought doctrinally. He's not worried. And he thought, God's got this. And he was exactly right. So that can be our lives. Smudge pot, flaming torch. We make the decision. We must take God at his word. Let's bow for our closing word of prayer. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity. We pray that God, the Holy Spirit, will take uh, this information and make it a source of challenge and blessing to us. For we ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you, Mike, for that blessed message. Till next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.